Hi, this is Steve Nerlick from Cheap Astronomy. Why, 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 why cheap astronomy? Yeah, why? And this is Dear Cheap Astronomy, Episode 2, The Subatomic World. In this episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy, Barry will talk us through the puzzling entities known as neutrinos, and then Julia and Durney will answer a question about thermonuclear weapons. Seriously. But first, here's Barry. Hello, this is Barry Howarth. Dear Cheap Astronomy, How do neutrinos fit into the grand scheme of things? And can they really move faster than light? The subatomic world is divided into fermions and bosons. Broadly speaking, fermions include their main constituents of stable matter, while bosons are mainly force-carrier particles, which often have no mass. A photon is a good example of a boson. Fermions, the matter particles, can be further subdivided into hadrons, which include protons and neutrons, and leptons, which include electrons and neutrinos. But... If only it were that simple. To complicate the above story, you also get things like mesons, which are unstable matter particles, called bosonic hadrons. What technically defines a fermion versus a boson is whether the particles have integer spin, bosons, or half-integer spin, fermions. And these unstable mesons do have integer spin. But the general rule that fermions are matter and bosons of forces, does work most of the time. Anyhow, neutrinos are definitely leptons, and are essentially neutrally charged versions of the other leptons, electrons, muons and taus, all of which have a negative charge. So we say that neutrinos come in three flavours, electron neutrinos, muon neutrinos and tau neutrinos. On the antimatter side of things, there are also positively charged leptons, being positrons, antimuons, and antitaus. There are thought to be antineutrinos, but since they are also neutrally charged, some people have suggested that the antimatter version of a neutrino is, well, a neutrino. Anyhow, neutrinos are weakly interacting. That phrase should be taken literally since neutrinos interact via the weak force and not by the strong or electromagnetic forces. This is why they can zoom straight through a light year of lead as though it wasn't there. It's generally agreed that neutrinos have mass, but so little mass that no one has been able to put a figure on it yet. They are often clocked moving at 99.99% of the speed of light, which is also the case for electrons, which, you might remember, are also leptons, but do have a known mass and a negative charge. However, electrons can only maintain these kinds of speeds within a vacuum. Neutrinos, being weakly interactive, can maintain these kinds of speeds while moving through solid objects. This is the basis of the now infamous Oscillations Project with Emulsion Racking Apparatus, or OPERA, experiment which tracks neutrinos emitted from the CERN Large Hadron Collider. Those neutrinos move in a straight line through the Earth's crust to a detector 
730 kilometers away in Italy. Now, no one would have been the tiniest bit surprised if these opera experimental neutrinos had been clocked moving at 99.99% of the speed of light, because that's what neutrinos do. But as it happened, they were clocked at 100.0025% of the speed of light. So instead of being a tiny bit under, they were a tiny bit over. The smart thing to do under these circumstances is to start checking your equipment for bugs before you start suggesting that you have overturned one of the foundations of modern physics. It doesn't seem likely that this finding will survive further scrutiny, which the opera people are half expecting anyway. They just want to understand how they got the data that they got. Okay, bringing this recording to a close. And... No, accidentally pressed the resume button. Silly technology. And thanks, Barry. Of course, the whole neutrinos faster than the speed of light thing is now well behind us. The opera people having acknowledged that their equipment was faulty. Of more immediate interest is that this episode is coming out not long after the Higgs boson discovery was announced in July 2012. So I hope Barry's review of bosons and fermions is timely in that respect. And now, over to Julia and Durini to talk us through thermonuclear explosions. Dear Cheap Astronomy, Do thermonuclear weapons have anything to do with the fusion reactions that drive the sun? Well, not much. Human-made thermonuclear explosions and solar fusion Both involve thermonuclear reactions, but the underlying principles of these reactions are quite different. Thermonuclear weapons are built using heavy radioactive isotopes, which being radioactive are already a bit unstable. If you fire a neutron at a high velocity at a nucleus of such material, the impact can be sufficient to split the heavy nuclei into two smaller and lighter nuclei. This splitting of an atom, as people sometimes call it, or fission, releases some of the energy that bound the original heavy nucleus together, and that energetic reaction will fling off a number of particles, including, let's say, two high-velocity neutrons. And if you have packed a lot of fissile material together in just the right way, then those two high-energy neutrons will each hit two more heavy radioactive nuclei, splitting them which releases more energy and now four high-energy neutrons. And if they each strike four more heavy radioactive nuclei, then you have the makings of a chain reaction, where the actions of two atoms splitting splits four atoms, which splits eight atoms, then 16 atoms, then 32, and so on. Now, we should explain that the first atomic bombs, including the ones detonated over Japan that killed about 200,000 people, mostly civilians, were really fission bombs, designed around the chain reaction principle we have just described. Real thermonuclear bombs came later, including the hydrogen bomb, which does actually include a hydrogen fusion step, although the bomb still requires the fission of heavy radioactive isotopes. Essentially, an initial fission step heats a package of hydrogen isotopes, deuterium and tritium, 
to temperatures sufficient to enable fusion. That fusion step then fires out high-energy neutrons to generate more fission from another package of fissile material. The advantage of this thermonuclear design is that you can build stages within the bomb, and that allows you to build bombs that are at least an order of magnitude more powerful than the original fission bombs. Fortunately, at least to date, such nightmarish weapons have never been dropped on anyone. Cheap astronomy suggests that we keep it that way. So, from all that, you hopefully get the picture that enabling such thermonuclear reactions to take place on Earth requires a lot of precision engineering and the careful packing together of enriched fissile materials into some very intricate and artificial patterns that you won't find in nature. If we now consider what does happen in nature, we find that natural thermonuclear reactions have nothing to do with engineering. The powerful self-gravity created by a star's mass is all that is needed to drive these reactions. If you pack hydrogen together within the dense core of a star, the compression generated from the overlying layers of the star's mass heats the hydrogen protons and forces them together, enabling fusion reactions which create even more heat remembering that fusion is a thermonuclear reaction. And this extra heat facilitates more fusion. But you wouldn't call this a chain reaction. It's ultimately the density of the star's core containing the heat that makes stellar fusion possible. In the sun's case, you never actually see thermonuclear explosions. There are lots of conventional explosions on its surface, of course, like solar flares and coronal mass ejections, but these are the results of an ongoing dynamic struggle between gravitation, radiation pressure, and the sun's intense magnetic field. All the thermonuclear activity within the sun takes place deep within its core, and the sun's powerful self-gravity prevents any chance of an explosion taking place there. The high-energy radiation and subatomic particles produced by thermonuclear hydrogen fusion have to slowly negotiate their way outwards over hundreds and thousands of years, through the dense layers of the sun until they reach its surface. This is not an explosion. There are also a huge amount of high-energy, though weakly interacting, neutrinos produced by solar fusion. These pretty much shoot straight out of the sun, from deep within its core, out through its surface at close to the speed of light. But this is not really an explosion either. The weakly interacting neutrinos don't blow up the sun, they just leave. Of course, nature is full of genuine thermonuclear explosions, which are called supernovae. These are seriously stupendous thermonuclear explosions, caused by the collapse of a massive star's core or by a white dwarf exceeding its Chandrasekhar limit. But these supernovae explosions also have almost nothing in common with the relatively tiny chain reaction based fission explosions we have managed to artificially create on Earth. Still, despite their small size, these small terrestrial explosions can still leave deep and prolonged feelings of guilt and regret in their wake. They should be avoided at all costs. And thanks, Julia and Dorony. Now, before anyone writes in, let me clarify that a chain reaction isn't necessarily a 2, 4, 8, 16, etc. type of numerical progression more likely, it will involve multiples of three, but even then there's some variance, depending upon the different fission steps involved. 
And yes, we really should be forgetting about the bomb stuff and instead using this technology for something more useful like energy production and perhaps even spacecraft propulsion. Anyhow, that was another episode of Dear Cheap Astronomy. If you have any burning questions on astronomy or space science, just write to cheapastro at gmail.com. Thanks for listening. Bye.